morning. Good to see you. I'm so excited that you are here with us. If this is your first time to Sunrise, just want to thank you for jumping in, hanging out with us. This is a great place. It's a very kind place. A lot of good people here. Um, just, just a good sign of that is uh, even though, um, oh, somebody knows where this is going already. You're like, even though the Oregon Ducks beat my USC Tro- Trojans last night. Here's the weird thing. If it's your first time here, that's as loud as they'll get. I'll preach about Jesus. You know, volume gets lower. I don't know what that says. I don't, I'm just, now you're like, ooh, that was a dirty trick, pastor. You turned it on us. No, it's a great place. They're kind. Nobody came up to me and was like, oh, pastor, what happened? Nobody did that, you know, except for Pastor Aaron. So Pastor Aaron will be leading next week at a different church. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I... You see, that's what happens when you make fun of the guy who's going to step on stage with a microphone. You just got to to balance that game out. Now, I'm very excited that you are here. And I have to say, this is a safe place. Not just for a fan of somebody who doesn't root for the local teams. But it's a place where you can ask really hard spiritual questions. And we want it to be that. We really do. We want it to be a safe place where you can navigate through the scriptures. Where you can navigate through the Bible. Because this book gets challenging. The more you open it, the more you read it, the more you're going to slow down trying to reflect on it, what you start to realize is this. This book is up here. And it's not that this book needs to catch up to this. It's that this needs to catch up to this book. And there are so many times where it stretches us and we think, ooh, I don't like that. Right? Just, Just a warning. If you're just starting to read the scriptures, you will not like what you read all the time. And that means that you're reading. <laughs> if you like everything, it's because you haven't read very much yet. Keep going because it's challenging. And one of the topics that's very challenging to talk about is the afterlife. And so what we're doing is we're studying the writings of Luke, specifically in the Gospel of Luke. He wrote Luke and Acts, the book of Acts, so kind of the document of what was happening in the New Testament church. And we are walking through this topic of the afterlife. And it is a heavy topic. It's a sobering topic. Today, I think you're going to see that the story of Jesus that he tells has a shocking and surprising kind of ending to it. So all of us are going to be stretched. Whether you're following Jesus or you're not following Jesus, I think all of us are going to be stretched today as we walk through this story that Jesus teaches, giving us lessons about the afterlife. Now, one of the questions that comes up when we're talking about the afterlife, and maybe you've been a Christian for just a couple months or, or, or a year or so, this seems to always be the question that comes up early when somebody just started to follow Jesus. And maybe as you're teaching your kids the scriptures and you have your family devotion time, I feel like this is always the early question that pops up. And the question is this, what happens to those who never hear? Right, the idea is like, what what what? What's the fate of those who never hear about the good news of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins? We say in the scriptures, or the scriptures say good news. And what that means, good news or gospel, means the good news of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. This is our way to be right with God. Well, what about those who never hear that message? What happens to them? Is it fair, is it fair for God to judge somebody on a message they never heard? Like, is it fair that God will hold somebody accountable to not taking an opportunity that was never available to him? That seems unjust. That seems unfair. What happens to those 
who never hear? Well, the story that Jesus tells is going to answer that question. It's going to answer that question kind of in the very end of the story. So we're going to have to track with Jesus a little bit. We're going to learn a little bit of what Jesus understands the afterlife to be. And then we're going to get at the very end what happens to those who, who never hear or say they never heard. Like can anybody in hell raise a fist to God and say, you didn't give me enough. Right? You didn't give me enough words. In fact, if you had to give me more, then I would have turned my life over to you. Like, is, is, is the problem of hell God's silence? Is the problem of hell that God has not revealed enough? So now here's the, here's the way that Jesus is going to answer that question. Jesus is going to answer that question with, no. Nobody can say in hell, God, you didn't say enough. Nobody could say that. Jesus will make it very clear that hell is not there because an inadequate amount of revelation, but rather man's lack of repentance. That hell is not about God's silence. Hell is about man's defiance. So if you write down one thing, here's what I want you to write down. This is the big idea for this morning. If you take away one big idea from our story today, it's this. Hell is not a hearing problem. Hell is not a hearing problem. No one in hell can say, you didn't give me enough. Rather, what you gave me, I rejected. That's the problem. Yes, it's true that God gives a different amount. Some people hear more. That's true. Absolutely. That's not what we're arguing. That's not what we're talking about is how much somebody receives. Rather, the question is, is God speaking? And the answer is yes, God is speaking. And the reason people are under his judgment forever is because they've rejected what they've heard. It's not that they just haven't heard. It's they've rejected what they've heard. Let me show you this. In Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Now, if what I've said... Just right up front, if what I've said has kind of made you feel a little uncomfortable, you're like, I don't like this, please, let's get to the end, okay? Just, just, just track with me, get to the end, because I think you'll see very clearly that this is the point that Jesus is making, that no one can protest to God that he has not given them enough, that he is unfair for his lack of revelation. He is unfair for being silent to them. We cannot make that case against God. And Jesus makes that very clear at the end of his story. So let's get all the way to the end. Okay, let's get all the way in and I'll show you that this is the teaching of Jesus. Now before we get to that story, before we get to the end, we got to see the audience. Who is Jesus talking to? Who is he directing this story at? So if you look down at your Bible, if you brought your, your physical Bible with you, and if you don't have one, let me know. We'll get you one. We want everybody to have a Bible. It's very important to us as a church. As you look down at Luke chapter 16, what you'll kind of notice is you're going to see that there's kind of these titles or these subtitles or subcategories of these chapters. So if you look down at chapter 16, you'll see in verse 14, right above that, it says maybe the law and the kingdom of God. And then you see in verse 18, it says divorce and remarriage. And then you see in verse 19, the rich man and Lazarus. That's the story we're in. You see how it broke it up? It does that to be helpful, to help us navigate through the Bible. But those were not in the original manuscripts, those title breaks. Jesus is on one continuous teaching right now. 
one continuous discourse. It's not broken up into sections. So when we see verse 19 and we think this is the story of the rich man and Lazarus, it actually started before. So in order to fully understand it, we need to get the context. What came before the teaching of Jesus? What came before is Jesus' interaction with, with a particular audience. Look in verse 14. Let me show you who this audience is because this is important for us to understand the story that Jesus is going to tell. Verse 14 says this. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all of these things and they ridiculed him. Now let's stop right here for a moment. A Pharisee was a religious expert, a religious leader, somebody who knew and was well-schooled in the Old Testament. And the way Luke describes these religious leaders is that they are lovers of money. Does that sound like a positive thing? Like when you're telling people about Sunrise, you're like, oh man, Sunrise, super cool church, we love it. There's this really good looking pastor. His name is Paul and that guy loves his money. Do you say that? Hopefully you don't say that. That's not true. The handsome part, that's true. The lover of money, that's not true, right? We want to take that as like, this is an endearing quality of a pastor and a religious leader that he loves money. No, clearly this is an indictment that Luke is giving. He's saying there's a mismatch here. The Pharisees who claim to be religious experts, they should love God. They should love the poor. They should love their neighbors. They should not love money. So right now we ought to get an indication of where is Jesus going to speak this story to. This audience who claims to know a lot, who looks pious and prosperous amongst the crowds, that really inside loves money. They are using the spiritual appetite of those around them, manipulating it so they can expand their wealth. Doesn't it just feel gross? Right? When somebody swindles you, that's one thing. Right? That, but when they do it using spiritual tools, that's just a whole other level of gross. That's who Jesus is talking to. Religious experts who look pious, who look blessed, that inside are corrupt. Look at how Jesus makes this clear. So Luke already gave this descriptor, these lovers of money. Then he says this. So verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed Jesus. They didn't like Jesus because Jesus has been teaching previous to this moment that they're not doing their job. That's essentially his indictment. You're not leading God's people well. You need to stop. Well, they don't like that performance review. Then Jesus says this, verse 15, and he said to them, you are those who justify, make yourself righteous, justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. Now that phrase is really important. This is not a comforting tone that Jesus is taking with the Pharisees, right? It's not like when you're consoling somebody and you're like, oh, friend, man, I know what you're going through, man. Man, I know what's going on in your heart. I know your heart. No, that's not the tone. Right? The tone is, I know what's really going on. You duplicitous people, you hypocrites. Oh, you look good from the outside, but God knows what's going on in the inside. And you justify yourself in front of men, but God knows you don't have his approval. You may have their applause, but you do not have his approval because you know what's going on in your heart. Jesus closes out this way. But God knows your hearts for what is exalted among men. So what everybody else admires, what does it say? Is an abomination in the sight of God. God is, is putting your life on a scale. 
and he is finding you in want, <laughs> in need. And so Jesus directs this story at this audience right here. Those who look righteous but inside are not. And so Jesus is going to tell the story. And you'll see it as the story unfolds. It's a story of contrast. Jesus is going to talk about somebody who had significant prosperity in this life. That ties to these people who love money. Jesus is going to title that person a rich man. And I think what Jesus is trying to do is tell the Pharisees, this is who you are in this story. You are this rich man who's prosperous, who loves his money, who does all these great things in this life. And then he'll contrast that with a very poor person who is suffering. And then the story will take this huge turn. It'll pivot. It's this great reversal that the one who had a lot will have nothing in the end. And the one who had nothing will have everything. And that great pivot point will be their death. When this life changes into the next, their allotments will be totally different. And what will happen is we'll get an explanation as to why. Why did that rich man who looked so prosperous, who looked blessed by God, why did he suffer an eternal fate of torment? And that's what we'll get our question of what went wrong with this man. Why is he there? Is he there because God didn't do enough? So let's start the story. Let's start the contrast. So Jesus tells the story. Jump to verse 15. Oh, sorry. Luke chapter 16, jump to verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gates lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with, the, with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So right here we get this, this incredible contrast between two totally different experiences. I mean, these guys are different in their wardrobe, they're different in their diet, they're different in what kind of shelter they have. It says the rich man was clothed in purple. Why was he clothed in purple? It's because he rooted for the Washington Huskies. Boo. Come on, Oregon. Like, we can, we can not like them together, right? There, thank you. Man. Okay, let's just keep going, right? I'm going to get distracted and then we're going to talk about way too much college football. And then I'll, then I'll cry at the end and then you, that's just going to be embarrassing. Okay, so the, he's clothed in purple. And what is that sign? It's not a sign of his college collegiate loyalties, right? It's a sign of royalty. Because to get your clothes that color at that time, you had to extract a very rare dye. And so this man is showing, and he has two pieces of clothing that are purple. So this guy is living it up. And not only is the color showing his luxury, what he's wearing, it says fine linen. So this guy is dressed very, very nice. And it says he parties every single day. Every day. He feasts, it says. Man, this is awesome. Like not just the weekends, every single day. It's incredible. And it says that Lazarus, this poor man was sitting outside of his gates. What does that tell us? This man has an estate. Like, this place is large. He just doesn't have a front door. He has gates that even get you into the property. This man is clearly what people would see, especially at that time, when they would look at him, they would say, man, you're blessed by God. You're a man to be admired. You're on the lifestyles of the rich and the famous. Everything looks good. And we get another character. And how is he clothed? It doesn't tell us. 
It just tells us instead of purple fine linen, his body is covered or clothed with sores. And it says that dogs come and lick these sores. Now, you may be thinking like, oh, emotional support dog, right? That's not what's happening in first century Palestine. Uh, Dogs were not seen as man's best friend. That's not what it was. They were seen as unclean animals. This is an unfortunate state. This is is an experience of suffering. His, His body is probably exposed for lack of clothing, which is why the dogs are able to lick his sores. So his wardrobe is one of pain, not of purple. And then it says he longs to be fed with the stuff that would just fall from the man's table. Jesus may be indicating what was common in in first century Palestine is that after you would eat a meal, and you didn't have like a napkin or something, so you would use actually pieces of bread. So if you get, you know, soup or whatever in your beard, you would just use a piece of bread, you know, just to go, that's kind of weird, right? Just rubbing sourdough on your, you're going to get acne. But apparently they didn't think about that then. Just like you would do it, you would wipe your hands, and then you just throw the bread away. This is what this guy wants. Like what you discard and you see is disposable and not good. I long, like my, my mouth waters for your waste. Oh, what a terrible state that this guy is in, right? And he has no shelter. He's just out there exposed to the elements and exposed to dogs. I mean, you can't get more probably of a drastic contrast and then we have the switch, we have the pivot, the reversal, and their experiences are totally different. Look what happens, and this is when they get to the afterlife, where in verse 20, sorry, 22, the poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. Abraham is in the Old Testament, he's the father of faith, he's the father of the Jewish people. So he is by this servant's side, the servant of God's side. He's by the patriarch of faith, the patriarch of the Jewish people. He's there near Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham. Now, okay, stop here. This is very interesting. Look at how he addresses Abraham. He knows that guy. Now, I don't know if they had like a name tag. Like, hi, my name is Abraham. In the afterlife, I don't know if that's what they do. But this guy knows who Abraham is. And he calls him father. Why does he call him father? He calls him father because he sees him as the patriarch of his people. This man is Jewish. Later in the discussion, Abraham will call him child. Or some translations will say son. Later on in our passage, they'll discuss Moses and the prophets. That's the Old Testament, all the writings of Scripture before Jesus. They'll discuss that, and it seems like this man is very familiar with that term. It's not something odd to him. What does that mean? This man's not a pagan. He's a Jew. Now think about the audience that Jesus is talking to. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, well acquainted with who Abraham is, well acquainted with the Scriptures. And this man finds himself on the wrong side in the afterlife. Even though he's Jewish, even though he knows the scriptures, even though he would call Abraham his father, he is far away from him in death. Why is that? You see the tension point that Jesus is bringing up to his audience? 
Maybe they feel safe and they feel comfortable. They're familiar with the scriptures. They know the prophets. They're Jewish people. They're fine. And Jesus says, no, this man received a shocking and surprising and sobering revelation at the turn of his life. And Jesus warning them, I don't want you to have the same thing. Now look at this dialogue that kind of unfolds between Abraham and this rich man. Lazarus doesn't say anything. He's just like this unimportant character. Like he's there and he's happy. But the dialogue is really about the rich man and Abraham. And I think that's because Jesus is targeting the story at the Pharisees. The religious leaders who know better but don't live better. Look at verse 25. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime... Received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Now here's something important that we learn, that we're getting glimpses of Jesus' understanding of the afterlife. Now, this is not the point of the story isn't for Jesus to describe the details of the afterlife. That's not the point. The point is to talk about why are these religious leaders not believing even though they know so much. That's really the point. But we do get some insight as to what did Jesus think of when he thought of the afterlife. And so we're learning about Jesus' view of the afterlife. And what do we see? We see that this rich man is alive after death. He is conscious and he is in torment. His soul is not asleep and he has not been annihilated. He continues to exist in a conscious state of pain. And that state is permanent. Do you see what he said? There's a chasm that has been fixed between us and you. And you can't come here and we can't go there. What is he communicating? You're there forever. In the state that you're in, there is no second chance. The gavel is hit. The verdict's been pronounced. There's no undoing it. Now let's nerd out a little bit, okay? When it says the chasm has been fixed, why does it phrase it like that? This is something very common in the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. We call it the divine passive, okay? We're going to nerd out on grammar here a little bit. There's a way you can use a verb. You can use an active verb, or you can use a passive verb. When you're using an active verb, what you're doing is you're you're stating the subject, like, I kicked the ball. Okay? Who's doing the action? I am. I'm kicking the ball. If I say, I've been kicked, that's passive. I'm saying, I'm the object of the kicking action. But who kicked me? I didn't say. I got kicked by somebody. Right? Now, the scriptures, they would use this to... As a sign of reverence, they would speak of the passive because what they wanted to do is not name God as subject. They wanted to revere him. So the idea is this chasm has been fixed. It's received the action. But who did the action? God did. Abraham did not build the the chasm. God fixed it. So that tells you man will not traverse it because God has fixed it. And he knows how to build. Right? So it gives us that sense of this is permanent Because of the actions of God. It's a very sobering reality. But the tension still remains. How did this guy get here? How did this prosperous man. Who can look at Abraham and call him father. How did he get here? 
the dialogue explains, and in a surprising turn, the man actually figures out why he's where he is. Which I would say, when I was reading this this week and studying it this week, I mean, I've read this passage so many times, and if you've been a Christian for a while, maybe you've done the same thing. This was a shocking new insight for me. I didn't realize that the man actually confesses that he knows what was missing in his life. Now, he doesn't know why he's missing it. We'll see that. But he knows what's missing. Look at how he diagnoses this. We're in verse 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, send to my father's house. Send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that they may not... Or so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. I don't want to be here, but I'm here. Here I am in torment. There's no sense of relief. He can't come and minister to me. There's this chasm here. I'm stuck here. You know what? I don't want my brothers to be here. So why don't you send Lazarus? If he can't send him to me, send in my brothers. And look at what Abraham says. Oops, I, swip, I flipped the passage there. There you go. This is what Abraham says back to him, verse 29. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. God has spoken. They don't need Lazarus to come back. God has spoken through the prophets. God has spoken. They have heard. That's enough. Enough. See, now here's the hard part is because our standard of enough and Jesus' standard of enough may not be the same. And you're going to see that as this rich man protests, he's going to say, he's going to reveal, no, I don't like that. That's not enough. You need to give me more. I need more. If they're, if they're going to change, they need more. Moses ain't good enough. The prophets ain't good enough. What God has revealed in the scripture, not good enough. You need to give me more. He will protest. I am here because God is lacking. I am here because God was silent. I am here because he didn't do enough. Now here's the sobering and shocking conclusion to the story. Because Abraham will say, not true. God has done enough. So the rich man has come up with a new idea. Hey, in order to not suffer this fate, you should send Lazarus from the dead. Which is actually really ironic because Jesus would raise a man named Lazarus in John chapter 11. Not this same guy. He would raise a man named Lazarus. And you know what happens after that? Do people believe? Some people do believe. Do you know what the religious leaders at that time, how they responded to Jesus bringing somebody back from the dead? You know how they responded? We got to kill Jesus. That was the response. Read the end of John chapter 11, which is so weird. So you're going to kill the guy who can beat death. Like like the calculus there, I don't understand. Like clearly he can bring people back to life. So you want to try to kill that guy. Don't you think he'll just come back? If you could do for him, what? But what does that show us? We have a, I think we have a, a wrong understanding of what we think will actually move the human heart. We think, oh, it's this and this and this. That'll do it. That'll convince him. Abraham has a total different perspective on this as just Jesus as he tells this story, this dialogue that Abraham is having with this rich man. Here's the shocking conclusion in end, verse 30. And he said, no, Father, I love this. So the guy in hell is lecturing the guy in heaven. No, 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 you got it wrong. Really? Who got it wrong? Who? Where are you? Where? Oh, I got it wrong. Oh, teach me. 
right? I just, I don't know, I just think that hell's down that way. Teach me how, so he says, no, Father, I got a better, let's whiteboard this, I got a better conclusion. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will, what does he say? Repent, dude, this guy figured it out. He should be a pastor. That's a good point. That's the whole message of Jesus and the message of the early church, the message of the New Testament. This is, right here in that one word, encapsulate what is the Christian decision. It's repent. That word means to turn. It means I was going this way, following my sinful desires, which was bringing about guilt and shame. And it put me in a place of needing God's forgiveness. But God provided that forgiveness in Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection. And when I hear that news, what I say to myself is, I'm not going this way anymore. I'm going this way. I'm turning. I'm repenting. That's how Jesus started his ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. This guy got it. He says, I know what I was missing. My problem wasn't the abundance of my riches. My problem was my lack of repentance. He knows what's missing, but he doesn't know why. Right? Look at how the story concludes. But Father Abraham, but if someone will go to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, this is sobering right here. Remember, I think we've talked about the stories of Jesus. Just find the surprise, that's the point. Find the shock, that's the point. Here it is. The close of the story. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should raise from the dead. Wow. Abraham is saying, if they rejected what God already said to them, the more he gives, the more they'll reject. The problem is not that they haven't heard enough. It's that they've rejected what they've already heard. They have Moses. They have the prophets. Their hearts are hard to them. So no matter what God does on top of them, they will not receive. No matter what he gives to them, they will not receive. They've already made their decision. They're already rebelling against God. It's not that God's not saying enough. It's that they're not listening enough. It's not that God is silent. It's that they're defiant. It's not that his revelation is inadequate. It's that they lack repentance. Because they have heard. And what they've heard, they've rejected. And because they've rejected them, it doesn't matter. If God were to give them more, they would reject that as Well, hell is not a hearing problem. It's not I haven't heard enough. It's not that he hasn't given me enough. It's that I have not responded to what he has given. Now you may be thinking, hold on, Pastor Paul, I got you. Okay? Because Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees have Moses and the prophets. They have, well, the Old Testament, which is like that much of the Bible. So that really doesn't answer the question because you said we were talking about, what about those who've never heard? And these guys have clearly heard Moses and the prophets. Okay, maybe they haven't heard of the resurrected Jesus. They haven't heard about somebody rising from the dead, but they've heard something. So it feels a little more fair that they would face judgment because they rejected what they heard. That's true. But everybody has heard. See, in that question is a false category. And that question is an unbiblical category. 
When we ask the question, what about those who never heard, we have an assumption we make in that question, a thought before we make that statement, and that is, there are those who are without God's revelation. There are those who haven't heard something from God, and that's not a biblical category. Everyone has heard. Now, that may vary on how much they hear, but everybody has heard. Let me show you this. In Romans chapter 1, Paul describes this very clearly in verse 18. Listen to this. This is Paul writing. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They're pushing it away. That's what the word suppression means. They're pushing away, which implies something's being put in or put on them or revealed to them. And their response is to suppress, to push away. They suppress the truth, verse 19. For what can be made known about God is plain to them. That's a very important word. Plain to them. Not confusing, not clouded, but plain. Plain. It is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. Who is doing the revealing? God is doing the revealing. And he's not impotent. He's not anemic. He's not confusing. He's made it plain. And he has shown. And the response of humanity is to suppress. He continues to unfold. Look, verse 20, making it more clear. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. God has been doing this from the beginning. He didn't take a break. There's no commercials in his testament and revelation in creation. He keeps doing it. He keeps revealing. In creation and the orchestration of every life on this planet, he is showing himself to be involved and to not be indifferent toward humanity. He loves humanity and he's made that clear. His existence is there. The problem is not that the light is dim. The problem is we keep trying to turn it off. So we create this category in our mind, but what about a genuine seeker of God? What about them? And they never hear Jesus, so they go to hell because God didn't give them enough. That category does not exist. Because God has revealed himself. And we reject, and that's what holds us accountable. Look at how he ends the logic of what he's saying. I'm going to jump back into verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Wow, that's heavy. That's heavy, right? There's the standard. There's the standard right there. So our category of what about those who are never here is as artificial as the rich man's hypothetical situation. If you give my brothers this, they will repent. Which I think is an underlining way of saying this man is saying, if that was true for me, then I wouldn't be here. Right? He's playing the blame game. And when you play the blame game with God, guess what? You lose. You lose that game. Because the man cannot shake his fist at heaven and say, you haven't given enough. The reason I'm here is because you're mute. The reason I'm here is because you're silent. The reason I'm here is because your revelation is inadequate. The reason I'm here is because you didn't put forth the effort. God's response to that is what? I have shown you and made plain, and you've rejected that. 
If the light I gave you would have responded to, I would have continued to give you more and more and more and more and more and more. But the story of humanity is not that. The story of humanity is rejection and suppression. Hell is not a hearing problem. It's a rebellion problem. God is speaking. And the reason hell exists is not because God's revelation is inadequate. It's because man lacks repentance and submission to the one who is showing himself to them. If you're a follower of Jesus, here's my encouragement to you. Here's my challenge to you. My challenge to you is to pray. Is to pray this week. Pray for those in your family group, in your friend group. I want you to just pray, if you would. Just If you go over, it's fine. But if you just would pray for one hour for one person who's not yet following Jesus. And not praying with the assumption, man, God is not speaking. Rather, praying with the assumption, God, would you open their ears? Right? Would you open their eyes? Would you help them see that you are shaping their story? That you have made yourself clearly evident in creation that you are orchestrating their stories. You're creating beautiful poetry out of their lives. Showing your authorship, your love, and your care. Father, would you show that to them? Get their fingers out of their ear. Right? We pray with that assumption. God is speaking. God is calling. God is on the move. God is drawing. He is moving. Father, would you open their eyes today? I love when we pray for each other. I do. I think it's great. I think it's awesome. If you're a group leader here, I want to challenge you this week. I love, take prayer requests, that's great, that's awesome, okay? Next week, next week, do all that. But this week, this week, would you pray for one friend and one family member for one hour? Say, this is where we're devoting our time to. Because what I don't want, I don't want my conversation with my loved ones to be across that chasm. That's fixed forever. I don't want to be like, oh, hey, I know you. I don't want that. You don't want that. Nobody wants that. Pray. Pray that they would be open to what God is already speaking because they will be without excuse. Because he is speaking. He is speaking. And they won't be where they are because God hasn't shown himself, they'll be where the, or hopefully they won't be, right? But they'll be in that separation from God because this heart hasn't submitted yet. Hell is not a hearing problem, right? It's a listening problem. And so pray that they would listen and listen to you. You're speaking to them too. That's God speaking to them. Pray that God would be a part of those conversations. And maybe you're not yet following Jesus. Right? You're coming to church because it's a safe place to ask spiritual questions. And you're like, yeah, I'm kind of doubting that now after this message. Like, I, I, I get that. But, okay, hear me. Please. Please hear me. God is speaking to you. He is. Now, I know. You're like, Paul, I made all the choices. Like, I put the blinker on. I went in the parking lot. I followed the little parking guy, and he told me where to go. I shook your hand. I did all that stuff. Like, I got myself in my seat. Yeah, I know. It all looks like that. It does. But if you kind of peeled away the spiritual vision of what's actually happening, 
you would see God is calling you. Jesus says that he draws us. Jesus describes it when the shepherd speaks. The sheep say, I know that voice. The shepherd is speaking to you. That's why you're here. That's why you're in this room. It's not an accident, and it's not completely because of your intention. It's because God is calling you. Will you listen to him? Will you listen to him? Because you will be accountable for this day and what you've heard and everything you read in here. You will be accountable to his voice. Will you listen? I hope you will, and I hope you will hear that he loves you and he cares for you. And he knows your burden of sin and shame and guilt. He knows the secret sins that you thought you hid from everybody else. He knows them, but he's not repelled by them. If you listed off your sins to maybe your, your closest friend, they may never want to be your friend again. If you reveal to them what goes on in here and goes on in here, they may be repelled by that. But the God of the universe isn't. He is intimate with your shame and is willing to take it away. He knows all the thoughts of your hearts, all the intentions that you have. Every corrupt thought, he knows them all and he is not running away from you. He is running towards you and he's saying to you, I can get it all away. I can take it all away. Through the death of my son, I can take it all away. Just turn. Just turn and come to me. I hope you hear that because that's what God is saying to you. He's speaking that to you. Will you listen? I pray you'll listen. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you are speaking. We thank you that you are revealing yourself. You have displayed your glory in creation to such a degree that we are all without excuse. Yes, we've all received different, different degrees of what we've heard. It's true, but we've all heard Something, And we are accountable to what we have heard. Father, I pray. I pray this week. Father, I'm, I'm, I'm excited and eager to think about so many people, hundreds of people praying, praying for other people who aren't yet following Jesus and praying that their friends and family members, their loved ones would listen. They would listen. What could you do, Father? How would you use the, How are you going to use those prayers? How are you going to use those prayers? I don't know. But I'm excited to see. I'm excited to see because I think you'll be honored. I think you'll be honored by that. So, Father, I pray that you be with us. Put on our heart that person, that one person who's not yet following you. And maybe that gap feels so far like, man, would they ever listen? Would they ever hear? Could I ever tell my story? Could I ever pray with them, read the Bible with them? Could I ever do these things? And we feel like there's such a gap. But the gap at the end is so much bigger than the gap there is now. And I don't want to know that gap in the end. I don't want to know that gap. I don't want to see that chasm and think there's my loved one on the other side. I don't want that. So as big as the gap fills now, relationally, emotionally, there's the conversational awkwardness. Let us leap across that gap because we can't leap across the one in the end. It's too late then. Oh, Father, be with our friends and family members and help them to listen to the words. May they be softly spoken to us or spoken from us, but spoken with clarity. Love and passion. And Father, for those who are not yet following you, 
I pray that they would continue to see this space as a safe space. Yes, it's a challenging space. When we open up your scriptures, it stretches us. But I pray, I pray they would hear your message of love and how you care for them and how you can see beyond their shame. You can see past their guilt, that you know them, that no one knows them like you know them. No one knows the dark corners of their soul like you do. You know every corner and you do not hide from us. Oh, I pray they would hear that. Hear that love. Hear that affection. I pray, Father, that they would fall in love with you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.